We wondered yesterday whether a fight for more ballot drop boxes might be appropriate in federal court instead of a state court where it's been filed. And now we hear tell that the League of Women Voters and the NAACP might bring a case there. But we're not even going to talk about that today because there's so much other news to discuss on this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Chris Ranowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. We got a lot to talk about. Let's get to it. With the legislature doing nothing so far to fix the corrupt House Bill 6 First Energy nuclear plant bailout, is it possible that Attorney General Dave Yost will champion the interests of Ohio residents and take action himself? Jane Cahoon, we are now a month from the announcement of the huge scandal in Columbus, where we learned that the bailout of nuclear energy plants owned by First Energy was corrupt. And the legislature, while saying up front they were going to repeal this and do the right thing, and Mike DeWine calling for its repeal, they've done absolutely nothing to fix this outrage against the taxpayers. So Dave Yost made an announcement yesterday that might give us some relief. What was it? Yes, Yost is sort of waiting in the wings to go to court. You might recall that Andrew Tobias reported a couple of weeks ago that Yost was preparing for a lawsuit over this, and he had sent letters to lawmakers and First Energy telling them to preserve records. Well, on Wednesday, Yost told the Toledo Blade and then confirmed to us that he's considering legal action, like uh, going for an injunction to, to actually block the subsidies that House Bill 6 would create for the two nuclear plants, Perry and davis Bessie, But he's hoping the legislature is, is going to act. But if they don't, he's ready to go. I, I'm still stunned that they haven't. I mean, it was very clear. Ohioans were super outraged. Biggest bribery scan on history. $60 million, all funded by First Energy. And everybody had the feeling they should not benefit from this. They shouldn't get the $150 million a year tacked onto our, our electric bills. And it, yet it's a month later and nothing's happening. And you wonder, does First Energy have the audacity to be in the background lobbying <laughs> legislators not to? Because why wouldn't they immediately write this? Because, you know, they're all up for election in November. This is the kind of thing that could play into that. Well, they're getting pressure from various sides. Uh, number one, I should say that the state Senate is actually scheduled to meet next week for the first time since householders arrest. And they are supposed to discuss this. So we, we have to see what happens next week. But, you know, lawmakers are getting pressure from this new coalition of environmental groups and competing utilities, you know, including like natural gas interests that, that recently formed. They are putting some heavy pressure. They're, they've, uh, they're spending like $900,000 in, in digital ads targeting voters in 22 state legislative districts. And then on the other side, we have county commissioners for Ottawa and Lake County, where these plants are located, pleading to to not repeal this without some kind of replacement, because they said even though they deplore illegal and unethical activity, that the plants are responsible for thousands of jobs and, and they, they need this lifeline. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. It's always about <laughs> selfish self-interest. The thing is that the, the legislators voted for this. If you were a legislator and you cast a vote for this and you didn't know it was corrupt and came to find out that you had just been played for a stooge, wouldn't you want to get this put behind you? Wouldn't you want to vote against it? I, I mean, I'm just surprised that a month after the outrage, we're still 
we're still waiting. And so I, you know, I look, I, Dave Yost has done some things we've criticized over the past couple of years, but, but recently he has stood up to, to kind of serve the residents in a way that, that I'm kind of glad to see. And if it takes Dave Yost filing a lawsuit to, to make this right, more power to Dave Yost. We'll have to see how it goes. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Do we have a clearer picture of how First Energy uses its money and its muscle to get what it wants from legislators in Columbus and what might happen to those who defy the utility? Chris Ranowski, this kind of follows up on a conversation we had to begin this podcast. We asked John Coniglia to go out and, and really examine how First Energy has conducted business because we kept hearing in the aftermath of the Larry Householder $60 million bribery scandal that First Energy kind of rules the state house that it mm-hmm. has gotten its way. So John has put a lot of time into this, talked to a lot of people. What did he find? Uh, yeah. So this is a terrific story. So I, you know, before I say anything about it, I would urge people to actually go and, and read it. But, but he spoke with a lot of current and former lawmakers and combed through hundreds of pages of court documents. And the story that published this morning basically comes to the conclusion that I think a lot of people just kind of accepted as part of the political process. But but First Energy wielded a, a significant amount of political power and wasn't afraid to to use it and to to pressure and to even, you know, kind of threaten people, uh, lawmakers with, you know, bankrolling opposition in, in elections and stuff like that. I mean, he talked to Steve Arndt, whose district is in Ottawa and Erie counties, um, and he told us that a lobbyist for First Energy told him that he needed to to get on board with House Bill 6 or his political future was over. And he suffered through a very negative campaign that he believes was funded by dark money. Um, Chris Redfern, former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, said, and I quote, if you didn't support everything that First Energy wanted, you knew that your opponent and your election was going to be flush with money. And he called the company bullies. So it's worth noting that the company and nobody from the company have been charged with any crimes as of today uh, in the ongoing investigation. But um, Westlake Republican Dave Greenspan, who was in opposition to householders' attempt to become the Speaker of the House and the First Energy le- legislation, spoke to us, and he he basically said, like, look, they, they threatened to primary me and basically bankroll somebody for my, for my seat in the House. And in, in, in 2018, he faced a primary challenge uh, from a political novice by the name of Monique Boyd, whom he defeated by taking nearly 90 percent of the, the vote. But some of Boyd's top can- campaign contributors included like Westlake businessman Tony George, who, you know, if you follow the news in Cleveland, you know his name. He's a, a, a big Republican benefactor and, 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 and donates to a lot of causes and, and has been kind of, you know, we've talked about him in relation to First Energy and Householder and that relationship. So, but George gave Greenspan's opponent like $17,000 for the race, according to campaign finance reports. And, um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, at the at the end of the day, I think what what you see is just how how much power big companies like this wield in in state governments. You know, we're one state government. There are utilities like this all over the country. You know, and 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 you know, they they just they have so much might. You know, so much political might, so much so much influence, 
and the the ability to really twist your arm and 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 really sort of get people to fall in line. You know, what I mean, was in, one of the things that I found interesting in John's story when I first read one of the drafts was that he talked to plenty of people who who used primary as a verb. That mm-hmm. the big fear of first energy is they would primary you and you're, you'd be primaried where they would load up against you like like Greenspan saw. Uh, but we didn't have a lot of examples of that. And and in talking to John, it, it's like, you know, if this is such a big threat, why don't we have a lot of examples? And the answer is the threat was so powerful, they didn't really have to live up to it. That the, basically the threat of the primarying got people in line and they generally did what First Energy wanted without question because they just didn't want to face that because they knew the money was so powerful. That's a scary thing. And uh, we've heard for years that First Energy kind of runs all energy policy in the state. And we're going to look at this, but I talked to somebody in the investment world who's an expert in this. And he said that if you look at First Energy's rates, they, they're like a hundred percent higher than they should be. That, that Ohioans are paying a ridiculously high rate that the whole industry looks, that looks at this across the country looks at Ohio and says, what's wrong with that picture? Especially for people that are, that are not wealthy, which Ohioans are not having to pay that much money. And we're going to look at that. It's all public record. But, but if, if they use this kind of muscle with the PUC, to get their way so that everybody gets gouged. That's interesting too. It's just, so everybody should read this story. It tells you a lot about how Columbus operates. It'll be in the plane dealer on Sunday. It's on cleveland.com now. Uh, great work by John Caniglia. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How will things work for the Cleveland Browns fans attending games this fall? If governor Mike DeWine allows them to be there Laura Johnston, the Browns have been working for some time to figure out a way to have some number of fans in the stands, even though it'll be much diminished. They finally kind of laid out their system for this yesterday. It's a little odd, uh, but, you know, maybe it'll get some people screaming in the stands so they don't have to pipe in fake crowd noise. <laughs> or do the, the cutouts of people like the Indians do. Um, yeah, there, there's some very specific plans. So all tickets will be mobile. They'll be sold in pods of known fans. And this is a really interesting idea. So they're going to sell tickets in groups of one to 10 of people who are allowed to sit next to each other. That means they should be family members who live together or are closely familiar with each other so that they're already spending time with them during the coronavirus and it's not a new encounter. Those tickets for those pods will be six feet apart from other pods. They'll come with an assigned gate and a recommended entrance time, and they'll have to leave through the gate that they entered. That way, you're not going to have the mad crush of people going through the doors. To go, they're going to have to go through a self-health screening and a temperature check. And then the stadium is going to be separated into four color-coded quadrants. So you can get up from your seat to go get a drink or food, but you have to stay in your color. The idea that you have to leave through the same gate you came in, when I heard that, I thought, how do you guide that? But it, but it turns out the gates are tied to the quadrants and they're going to have obstacles to the quadrants. They're also going to have you do some sort of self assessment and and a test that you did that, I guess, online mm-hmm. before you can get your digital ticket? Well, so <laughs> I've been to Cedar Point, which I know you're probably going to roll your eyes at, and they had the same kind of uh, health screening. And they were basically like, read the questions, you know, like, do you, ha- are you feeling well today? Have you been in encounter with someone else? So I don't think these are going to be 
really in-depth questions. But the idea is that you're on your honor, you're going to this game, that you've gone through this checklist and you haven't traveled to some place or you haven't been feeling sick, you don't have a cough. But they will take your temperature. Oh, I thought you had to take your own temperature. Oh, I think that, well, we'll see how this this uh, pairs out. But I thought they were going to be doing one of those scans of your forehead because that's something they can do easily. But Oh, I thought the self-assessment included it. We'll have to get clarity on that. Yeah. The, the, the problem is, is Mike DeWine hasn't said yay or nay. Uh, but I guess Browns fans have been waiting to find out, will I actually be able to get in and see a game? Uh, you know, there is always, there's, you know, every year with the Browns, we have this expectation they're going to be good and then they dash our hopes. But we have this <laughs> expectation this year they're going to be good. And yeah. and the hope is that actually this is the year they are good. So so if you finally have them be worth watching and you can't get in, that would be a problem. But Mike DeWine has been been a stickler for uh, crowd control and things like that. Um, I I. I bet that the Browns have been talking to the governor's office throughout this. Uh, Jane Coon, do we have any idea when he might make a decision on these kinds of gatherings? No, I I think at today's briefing, he's going to address, you know, coronavirus cases in schools and how those are dealt with. And then he's going to release the new color coded map. But I don't know that that's on his uh, plate today. No, yeah, because oh, we're getting close. Games I'm are checking out Dan right now. Sorry, Jane. Um, okay. So the staff has on-site temperature checks. It looks like the fans are going to be asked to do it themselves. But okay. these are just the tentative plans. So we'll see what – and we don't even know if they can go. So we'll see what happens. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the grim benchmarks Ohio is hitting this week in the coronavirus? Jane Cahoon, we actually use the word grim benchmarks in capital letter today. And a reader wrote in to say, I don't see how you can say this is a grim benchmark. I think it's a positive benchmark and makes the argument more people die of the flu, more people die of car accidents. Mm. It's amazing the way the Mm. anti-mask anti-coronavirus pandemic crowd can twist things into good news. This is bad news. What the, the, the grim benchmark I'm talking about, clearly bad news. What is it? Well, one of them is that we surpassed 4,000 deaths, which I guess overall, if you want to look at that as a small portion of the nearly 180,000 deaths we've had nationwide, I mean, but it's a very stat- sad statistic about all the Ohioans we've lost and more than 2,600 of those were nursing home residents. And then the, the number yesterday was, was up above 1,000 in, in new cases. And we ke- kind of keep flirting with that. We, we sort of go below 1,000 and then we go above and then we go below. But the other thing was that Rich Exner reported that we now know that at least one in 100 Ohioans have been infected with the virus. Although, you know, it's probably more than that, or we probably reached that milestone earlier because of all the asymptomatic cases that have gone undetected. And the danger is focusing squarely on the deaths doesn't take into account the long-term suffering that a lot of people have had who have recovered from this, the the lung damage and the fatigue. And I mean, it affects right. lots of organs in the body. So so the 4,000 deaths is 4,000 4, families that have lost somebody well, can they, they cared about. Can I try we also in? have many, many more thousands that are suffering long-term effects. Chris Warnowski. I just looked this up. There, there are over 1,000 towns and cities in the state of Ohio. 4,000 people have died. So 
if if you if you cr- took all of those people who have passed away from this virus and put them into one municipality, it would be the 324th largest city in the state of Ohio out of over a thousand cities. So to give you some perspective, wow, this is the size of entire towns. You know, this is a that's a lot of people. So you're going to place rich as the data guru. <laughs> no, I mean it's, but I mean I you know I fine like try to minimize it like I. Look, I know some of us have people in our lives who have had this virus. It's terrifying. And and again, so if you know, if you want to try to bat it away as like, well, oh, the flu, whatever, you know, great. You know, I don't want to die of the flu. I don't want to die of any of this stuff. <laughs> so, so, you know, don't don't bat it away because you need a blooming onion. Like get off your high horse. <laughs> Put on your right. And, and shut you your mouth. Like shut keep your mouth closed. Keep your spores in your face. Well, the guy who wrote us the note, I mean, it was that tortured logic trying to say it's not a big deal and we should all get back to life. And it's just, you know, you can't you you can play with the logic, but you cannot negate just how devastating this virus has been. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Might we get finally get some resolution on what happened when an off duty Cleveland police officer shot and killed Desmond Franklin? And Chris Wernowski, I ask this question with the background of what's going on in Kenosha, where police have shot another black man, this time in the back, it sounds like seven times. He's at least paralyzed if he survives. They're having riots in the streets. There's all sorts of clashes going on between, I guess, white supremacists and, and protesters. You know, we we have cases in Cleveland that raise serious questions too. And Desmond was one of them. What's the news on that? So Ohio attorney general Dave Yost said his office is reviewing the case um, of an off duty officer who shot Desmond as both men drove down a busy street. Um, The story, uh, if you, this happened back in April and it's, it's one of those things where if you, if you've been to any of the demonstrations in Cleveland, you, you hear Desmond's name thrown around quite a bit. Um, and, but I think because of the coronavirus, the, the, the I, I think he, his story did not get, you know, a lot of attention from people who, you know, were focusing on other things in their lives. But, um, but Yo said his office began reviewing the case on June 23rd, uh, after the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office finished its investigation into the shooting by a Cleveland police officer by the name of Jose Garcia. Um, they're, they're, you know, Desmond's attorney or family has hired an attorney and uh, we spoke to them a while ago. And, and one of the, one of the things that they said was there may have been some racial things said before the shooting took place. The police say that Desmond and a friend were, were taking stuff out of a truck um, but what ended up happening is is a little bit in dispute and still kind of murky, and we might not ever know because you know he was off duty, so I don't think he had any reason to be wearing his body cam, and I think he was driving his own car, so he wouldn't have had uh, a dash cam in it. So, but but I but but all that said, it, it, Eric Foster, our, our columnist, wrote a great piece mm-hmm. a week ago saying, "Why is it taking so long to get some? Re- this happened a long time ago." Why is it taking so long to get any answers? And so this is good news that that Dave Yost independently is going to take a look at this because we do deserve answers. And, you know, whenever this this case comes up, there are people that say, and Eric dealt with this in his column, you know, Desmond had a a serious criminal record. 
you know, why, why isn't that being discussed? And as Eric pointed out, it doesn't matter. I mean, even if he has a criminal record, it doesn't mean police are free to shoot him. It, it, this case is about this guy getting shot in very suspicious circumstances and us not getting answers about it. And right. so I, it's a, it's a good sign that Dave Yost is doing it. I should point out as we're talking about this, Mary Kay Cabot just posted a story, the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Indians and the Cleveland Cavaliers have just formed an alliance to spread the message of social justice. It's all part of the, of what's going on in Kenosha as people are aware the NBA players didn't play last night as a statement. Some baseball games weren't played or at least one wasn't played last night because players are taking a stand uh, to, because everybody's so offended at the number of times police kill citizens. And, um, yeah. And, and the WNBA uh, major league soccer and, and, and I don't know if anybody saw this story, but there were some reports that the Lakers and the Clippers both voted to basically end the playoffs and LeBron, you know, Akron native LeBron James is, is, is kind of a leading voice and maybe saying the playoffs are over, but I don't know that they actually reached a conclusion on that or not. I think that story will sort of develop throughout the day, but, but that's a big deal. You know, I mean, this is, you know, this well, is you how get the it. movement started. I mean, how yeah. do you, how do you play games? How do you do that kind of thing? when this kind of crisis continues in the country. I mean, the, the sad thing is that Kenosha is not going to be the last one. We all know that. We right. all know we're going to get up one morning in the near future to another video of police killing another black man somewhere in America, in some city, and it just keeps happening. I mean, Chris, you mentioned the statistic the other day that was staggering. We're what, 200 days into the year? And how many days have we gone this year where police didn't shoot somebody? Yeah, I read a statistic that said that there were only 12 days out of this year where somebody hasn't been shot by a police officer. And and it's, you know, I, I want to circle back to something that you, you had talked about people's criminal histories and and I, you know, and I think that this is it, what what's what's nice about this is that I feel like a lot of news organizations have caught on to how police have sort of tried to manipulate that message over decades of, you know, you, you look at what happened in Kenosha and they're saying, well, this guy had a knife in his car. Well, it's like, OK, you know, carrying a knife isn't illegal. There's no indication that he threatened anybody. I believe he disclosed the fact that he had a knife in his car. Yeah, and kids and, in and, the and, car, and, too. And there are children in the car. And I can't, yeah. you know, I can't. There's this weird galaxy brain notion that, you know, and I look, I've covered a couple of these things in my career as a reporter. And sure as the sun comes up in the morning, you know, you say, oh, he had a gun on him. Well, it's like, well, if he didn't, if you didn't kill this kid. You wouldn't have known he had a gun on him because he didn't pull it on you. You've never said. And so, you know, we have to sort of, you know, as as a society, get over the notion that you're going to find these perfect victims. You know, there there are perfect victims. You know, Philando, you know, Philando Castile, you know, there there are people who are doing everything right and still getting hurt by police. And we get bogged down in these these conversations about bad apples. You know, you want to talk about one of the most impactful statements I think I've heard about this came from Doc Rivers the other night. And it was, you know, I was watching the after, you know, I just kind of casually watching the the post-game show uh on TNT, the in, inside the NBA, and they cut to Doc Rivers giving this really amazing speech about it. And his dad was a police officer for 30 years. 
And so somebody who was raised by a police officer who can point to something and say, this is, we need to fix this. Yeah. That's that, that means something. And, and I think a lot of, I think there are, you know, we talk about all the good police. Well, we're well past time for good police to start throwing these bad people under the bus and saying, I don't want to work in an environment where yeah. this is accepted. I, I wish, I wish the, the okay. police unions and, and, and departments would get to that point. And I don't okay. see it coming. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. The Ohio governor is letting high school stage football games, but is the coronavirus going to stop them? Laura Johnston, we have some ominous news events this week about high school football. It may not last very long. Why is that? Well, we have at least three teams in Cuyahoga County alone that won't be playing their first games on Friday because of positive coronavirus cases. Uh, Mayfield was the latest. Uh, they have two football players attested positive. I believe their volleyball team is also sidelined for at least 10 days because of a positive test. Uh, they joined Strongsville and North Olmstead in not being able to play. And it's supposed to be a six-week season, so we will see just how many teams will be standing at the end of that regular schedule the answer i i I hope we can get from the cuyahoga board of health which you know we know how open they are is are these kids getting the virus while they're practicing or is the fact they have the virus coincidental has nothing to do with football it's just they have it so the teams have to stop because if practice is spreading the virus that's the end of high school football for the season but if it's just kids who are getting it during at home and it's just the community spread then maybe they can pull it off we don't have that answer yet we're trying to get it but we do spend a lot of time in the state of ohio talking about high school football (laughs) with that dewine uh news briefings and he's got another one today so we'll see what the latest high school development and sports is okay it's this week in the cle I was really hoping not to get to this next question, but here goes. Did the Ohio <laughs> Supreme Court really issue an opinion involving watching people urinate? Jane, I got nothing here. I'm just going to go to you. <laughs> oh, come on. This is actually quite interesting. In fact, they did rule, and it had to do with a policy at a company called Sterilite, which has a really strict drug testing policy. So they have uh, like a same-sex monitor that accompanies an employee into the restroom to observe them giving their urine sample. And and two employees su- sued over this, saying this is an invasion of, of privacy. And they won on a, um, a lower court level. But the Ohio Supreme Court, in a four to three ruling Wednesday, written by Justice Sharon Kennedy, said if you're an at-will employee and you consent to a drug test, you, you can't claim invasion of privacy. Now, one of the the three dissenting judges uh, or justices, Justice Melody Stewart, wrote a dissent that said, you know, the employees were given this choice. That's really no choice at all, because it's like, do this or lose your job. And she basically said, you know, what kind of indignities does someone have to be subjected to, you know, to suffer, to avoid losing their income, you know, before they have a cause of action for invasion of privacy? One of the really interesting things about this politically is that the Democrats have jumped all over this because the the four justices in the majority are all Republicans. Two of them, Kennedy and Justice Judy French, are up for re-election, and the Democrats are trying to flip those seats and, and get a majority on the court. So they were all over the place branding this as 
anti-worker and i know they're gonna like ride this in into the election for sure yeah that's interesting that it'll be an election issue it yeah. is kind of uh, of creepy you're listening this week in the cle one more the coronavirus has been hard on cleveland's signature culture institution the rock and roll hall of fame and wednesday brought some pretty dire news what is that chris ranowski wait you think the rock and roll hall of fame is our signature cultural institution it's, it's the only thing we have <laughs> It's the only thing we have that is unique in the world. That's there are true. orchestras elsewhere. There are football teams elsewhere. There is only one Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it's ours. Okay. All right. That's a very good point. Very good point. But uh, to to your question, they yeah, they have faced a very dramatic drop in attendance, um, uh, about 80% drop in attendance uh, as a result of the coronavirus. And as a result of that, um, they've lost about half of their operating revenue. Um, so they have, they said this week that they are laying off furloughed employees, imposing pay cuts and planning for lean times ahead. Um, they are reducing full-time staffing by nearly 40% from 129 to 79 and part-time staff from 35 to 32. Um, many of the laid off employees were already furloughed, uh, during an earlier round of reductions back in April, but, you know, this, I, it's what's, what's really kind of crappy about this is that, you know, they were, I mean, they were on a roll for many, many years, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, they right. were, I mean, they were breaking attendance records, you know, they were bringing in like, you know, more interactive and cooler exhibits. And it just, you know, it does come at a time when they were really, you know, really kind of, I mean, not to use a crazy pun here, but they were kind of rocking. And, 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 <laughs> and so, you know, but they, they, they've offered early retirement, uh, to some employees. And, and, but yeah, it's just, you know, this is just one of another thing that is just, it's being devastated by, you know, this, this plague that we can't get a handle on. Yeah. Hopefully there'll be, there'll be some relief sometime soon. This is sad to hear because you're right. They had been on a roll. You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, guys, good discussion today. I'm sure we'll have another one tomorrow. Thursday always brings lots of big news and maybe that lawsuit will be filed about the ballot boxes by the time we talk again. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back to close out the week on Friday. <laughs>